Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. I'm back this week and speaking from the heart of our annual London conference, our flagship conference, which has started off in an extremely lively way with a speech from the Foreign Secretary and then a fierce debate on Ukraine, which we're coming on to. We're going to be talking this week about the recent events in Russia with the mutiny by Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner Group. And we're going to look at what that means for both Russia and Ukraine, where all this might go next. And then later, we're going to look closer to home, discussing the state of the UK's increasingly fragile economy and the implications for its standing in the world. And finally, stay tuned to the end of the show, where you'll find out who the winner is of this year's Chatham House Prize. But first, Ukraine, Russia. And I'm joined by three guests here at the London Conference who've just come off the stage from a very heated debate. Garry Kasparov is a world-renowned Russian chess grandmaster, but uh, also ardent critic of Vladimir Putin. And he's also chairman of the Human Rights Foundation. Joining us as well is our own Arisia Lutsevich, the head of our Ukraine Forum, who's just out with a team, put out a big report on options for getting to a lasting peace in Ukraine. And we have as well Jonathan Powell, who was way back, Tony Blair's chief of staff, was the chief British negotiator in Northern Ireland and runs a charity, Intermediate, which looks at armed conflicts and how to resolve them or at least improve them. Welcome, all three of you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you for having us. Great to have you here. Well, Let's start. Gary and Arisi, I'm going to start with you. You have been arguing in this report and fiercely on the stage just now that Ukraine must have even more assistance and must seek to get back all its territory if there is going to be lasting peace. Can you just take us through why you're saying that? The report's called How to End Russia's War on Ukraine, but more importantly, safeguarding Europe's future and the dangers of the false peace. And I think this is very important. We are not just speaking about why this is important for Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine and President Zelensky has made a very strong case for the territorial integrity and for accountability for Russian war crimes. But here we are making a proposition that a lot of the future world order hinges on the outcome of this war. And in order to come to an outcome where we could have stability in Europe. This requires, on one hand, change, deep change inside Russia from the imperial power to a nation state that will recognize sovereign borders of a neighboring state, but Russia itself, to be honest. And you know, it's the old wisdom back from Zbzinski who said that the only possibility for democratic Russia is the recognition of independent Ukraine. Uh, so for, for that transition to happen, Russia must lose. There have to be collective responsibility of Russian society. And for Ukraine, to be honest, Ukraine has passed a tipping point. It know where it belongs. 80% support membership in EU, almost 80% support membership in NATO. The political society is united with civil society. Ukraine wants to rebuild green, modern, uh, and to be part of the European market. All of this is part of the victory for Ukraine. It's not just territory. It's a civilizational choice. Gary, what do you think it means for Russia to lose. Russia has been talking about deep change in Russia. What do you think is needed for security in Europe? Uh, it's Russia has to be defeated, uh, soundly defeated in Ukraine, because that's the only way to kill the idea of the empire in the minds of Russians. 
1991 in Russia, the collapse of the Soviet Union was somehow in the 1918 in Germany. The Cold War was lost, but nobody understood why, and that's why there were stories about the traitors, knives at the back, and Gorbachev, Yeltsin, they betrayed our ideals, and Putin eventually played this card and tried to, to come back with, this, with the concept of uh, great, great Russia again. There's no room for empires in the 21st century, and as, as has been said now, it's the, we have to make a transition, if possible, from the imperial state of mind to a nation state. The transition that Ukraine has made Ukrainian nation now just transcends the, the ethnicity. They, they have a Jewish president, Russian officers, Crimean Tatars, and all other nationalities fighting for Ukraine. Russia, unfortunately, is not yet there, and I hope that Ukrainian victory will give us a chance, a chance, historical chance, maybe the last chance, to preserve, if not the whole a Russian territory as of today, because I believe some place like Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, and Chechnya and Dagestan may go on their own, but to bulk of Russian territories from Vladivostok to northwest of Russia, uh, and to find our way back into Euro-Atlantic geopolitical space. These really interesting replies, Jonathan, aren't they? Because these are, these are replies from both Arisia and Gary, which are about Russia, and Russia changing, and really making huge demands, many might think for how Russia might change. How do you think we get from where we are now to some kind of lasting peace? Well, the problem always in these cases is how you go about defining winning and losing because people have different perceptions of winning and losing. There's one type of winning, which is total victory, which we had in the Second World War. We, the Allies, occupied Berlin. We dictated the terms. There were no negotiations. Gary was talking earlier about the Civil War in the United States, where, again, uh, the North occupied the South, set the terms, no negotiations. That can obviously happen, but it's not going to happen in this case because the Ukrainians will not be occupying Moscow, will not be marching on Moscow. So total victory in the case of, sorry, victory in the case of uh, Ukraine would be getting all of its territory back, including Crimea, and then hoping that was sufficient to get rid of Putin. Now, that may be the case. There are historical precedents in Russia that we were discussing, 1917, obviously. There are precedents elsewhere with Milosevic, who was chucked out after losing in Kosovo, uh, Galtieri in Argentina, who lost in the Falklands and was thrown out. So it's possible, but we can't count on it. So this change in Russia is not in our gift. In the end, it's in the gift of the Russian people who will bring about that change, and we have to think about how we help that happen uh, if we're not prepared to actually take that last step. The other question is that this... I think we have very limited votes in this. Western countries are supporting Ukraine, but we are not fighting. We made the decision at the beginning. We were not going to put our men at risk. We were not going to go and fight alongside the Ukrainians. We provide weapons, we provide money, but we do not fight. Therefore, it is for the Ukrainians who are losing their lives. They get to decide when this war ends and what terms it ends. You make a very powerful moral point there that we're not risking our people's lives, therefore we don't get to say. Do we have any say, though? Because Ukraine could not surely hope of winning in any way without the considerable continuous support it is getting from the West, particularly from the US. I think Gary was making a very powerful point earlier in the discussion about the need for the West to provide uh, full support in terms of weapons systems, finance and so on. And it was very slow in bringing that about to start with, because if we care about them winning and we think that winning will change things, we should be doing more to do that. But in the end, that's going to depend on national parliaments. You know, in Congress uh, may or may not, with a debt ceiling, decide to give further funds for support. And the Americans' assistance dwarfs what anyone else gives. Britain keeps boasting about its assistance to Ukraine. It's tiny by comparison to what the Americans are doing. So we do need the Americans to keep on giving that support. No, I think we should be really uh, quite realistic about that and quite blunt that Ukraine cannot win without the US. And that's how we ought to look at the political debate and the, around the next presidential elections in 
the US. Arisia, this demand is absolutely understandable at this point, the demand by Ukraine for every inch of territory back, including Crimea. Absolutely understandable uh, position for uh, President Zelensky to take. Is there a, a point, though, where that might become even a handicap? Well, I think for Ukraine, when Ukrainian is talking about territory, they are talking about the homeland, about their cities, and also about the, you know, the geography and integrity of the country. Uh, the wars are brutalizing links between people, between villages, between bridges, rivers. So this is about restoring the natural connections that exist in the country. Obviously, Ukrainians with the um, now almost every 18 months of fighting on covering these horrible br war crimes, brutalities in the communities when they liberate from Russian occupiers. And this is actually reinforces their position that we must, absolutely must, bring in peace and justice to the land. Uh, I think, uh, depending on military capabilities, and this is the key question, will Ukraine have all the necessary military capabilities to demine, to do counteroffensive, to cross the rivers, to have airspace protection? And if it will, it will advance, because it has freshly trained troops that have not been deployed on the counteroffensive yet uh, as of now. Uh, obviously, in the society, there's quite strong consensus. But here's a but. If Ukraine puts enough pressure on the battlefield, and if there is a part of Russian military leadership that understands this war is not winnable, they may negotiate withdrawal. You know, we don't know. That's why I think the negotiating from the military position of power could lead to some of the concessions or some transitional periods or some settlements around Crimea. I don't know. We have to be obviously open. But at this point, this remains a strategy. Pressure on the battlefield leads to better negotiating position. So let's just stick on the battlefield at the moment and look at the counteroffensive that is underway at the moment and also this uh, rebellion, mutiny, if you like, by Prigozhin against uh, Putin in the past few days. Gary, where do you think that has left the counteroffensive in Ukraine and Putin himself? Uh, first of all, we have to uh, recognize a simple fact. Ukrainians are facing the most fortified uh, defense line ever built since World War I. It's more than 1,000 kilometers long and about eight kilometers deep with minefields, with uh, many uh, uh, hidden firing spots. So it's, it's, let's give credit to Russian engineers. And they built something very significant. And what's also important, uh, Ukraine has to fight a very unique war because it's nice to talk about NATO standards, but the entire you know, concept of American warfare was built on aerial superiority. All the wars Americans conducted, whether it was NATO operation in Serbia or wars against Saddam Hussein, two wars, or even Afghanistan, they always looked for air power to, to, to do the job before they started ground operation. Ukrainians do not have this luxury. So that's, that's something totally new. Uh, but the uh, very high morale of Ukrainian troops and, and the low morale on the other side tell me that there is a chance that even partial Ukrainian success of penetrating Russian defense lines may create a major problem for Russia. And the Prigozhin's, I don't know, call it coup, mutiny, rebellion. I'm not sure what it is because I'm still puzzled what was his demand. I suspect, and again, I, I know that now on the slippery ground of, of, of speculations, Prigozhin probably was not the only one member of this group. It's, he probably was a frontman of those who recognized the fact that the war was not vulnerable. And since Russia is more like a mafia structure now, it's, it's not you know, the state because you saw during Prigozhin's march to Moscow that all Russian official institutions has 
evaporated. So uh, the, uh, the prime minister, he was not seen. Speaker of Duma, Speaker of, of Senate, uh, Foreign Ministry, uh, Minister of, uh, of Interior, Minister of Defense, they're all gone. And of course, Putin has disappeared. So it tells me that it's, it's and all And Prigozhin has disappeared. No, so no, 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 but first, yeah, but it's, it's, it's like decorations, Hollywood decorations, nicely painted, but with nothing behind them. So it might be that it's, it's, it's still, you know, just it's, it's, it's ongoing de debate there. And maybe this negotiation was about, about these demands. So how to deal with this war, which endangered a multi-billion dollars. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of, of operations, financial operations controlled by, by, by this, you know, the top, top members of the mafia. And it's, it's all being in danger because of the Putin's unwinnable war. So this something is definitely going on there, and it will have not immediate but, but mid-term and long-term impact on, on Russian command structure because it definitely sows distrust among, among generals and, and officers. And I think many soldiers simply don't understand what, why they're fighting for. Jonathan, you were talking on the panel about uh, this not being the right time to negotiate at all uh, and, and it not being possible to negotiate I think you said with Putin's Russia as it is now, how do you judge what becomes the right time? Well, looking historically at negotiations, when they tend to succeed, when they make sense, is when you have what the academics call a perceived mutually hurting stalemate. That's not just a stalemate, but both sides realize they can't win militarily and want to find a political way out. That's what happened to us in Northern Ireland and elsewhere. As opposed to what we've uh, perhaps had in Ukraine and Russia, which is uh, each side thinking it can win. Exactly. They still think they can win. And the Ukrainians may well be able to because they have their offensive just starting. And if they have sufficient support and they get through the minefields that Gary was talking about, they have a chance of actually doing so. But I just wanted to comment on the precaution thing, because I think uh, we saw the photograph in the uh, US media yesterday of President Biden's speaking notes, um, which they managed to snap saying it's too early to tell, and it is too early to tell. But I think there are two important things from it. One is, it has punctured this air of invincibility around Putin. Um, you know, it's shown that he is like in the film The Yellow Brick Road, that the, it is all sounds and bellows and artifice and not real. He ran away during this when this happened. And the second important thing is the one that Gary said about what Prigozhin said about this war should not have been started. It started for the wrong reasons, and it's not winnable. That is really important because that will be percolating through the minds of the people who are being asked to die on the front line inside uh, Ukraine. So I think that will change things. And it's interesting, the spectacle Putin had to put up yesterday with the red carpet and the military on the background of the church to basically uh, reassure everybody, I am the man in power. But you see, this is what, da, what, what wars do to fragile and brittle systems which Putin built. He overstretched himself in Ukraine. Now it puts a lot of resources at strain, and you see this infighting. But also, it compelled Putin to confess that he financed Wagner, which he was denying since 2019. You're absolutely right. Really important point. Record. Yes. Uh, that, that was one of the really interesting, solid things that has, has come out of this, which he chose to say, and just how much money he had uh, put into that, whether or not we believe the, the figure. Just not money, cash. There's a big difference. It's not just $1.2 billion. It's $1.2 billion in cash. Uh, and that's only for one year. That's, yeah. And it's, it's, it just tells you about everything you have to know about the way the Russian power structure operates. Why do you think he chose to tell us that? I don't In, think, into the you know, mind of Putin. No, Sorry, I, I, I'm, ask, I'm exactly, asking I, you. I, 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 the answer is I don't know because I think Putin is definitely not in, in, in the right state of mind. I think it's, he was visibly shaken. It's, 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 he, he knows, I mean, instinctively, he knows that he doesn't have the same power as, as before Prigozhin's uprising because everybody saw he ran away. And he left Moscow un, 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 
unprotected, so at, at the mercy of Prigozhin and, and his and his mercy, uh, and his uh, troops. He sounded like like an accountant that the, uh, reporting to the shareholders at the factory <laughs> with this little paper saying how much they paid him. I'm going to remember that one because it is not always that he sounds quite like that. Jonathan, just coming back to this, how we judge this this moment, because we've just been describing how Putin is visibly weakened despite the red carpet and the rest of it. And um, and Ukraine now pushing ahead with this very difficult counteroffensive. What are the things you're going to look for in the next couple of months? Yeah, the academics have a very unhelpful concept, which is ripeness, because you can't possibly tell whether the situation is ripe until after the event and you succeeded. So what you look for are windows of opportunity. Uh, if the Ukraine is successful in the uh, offensive, say it breaks through right down to the Azov Sea, then that will be a chance to for Putin, if he's willing to, to sit down and uh, decide to settle this thing once and for all. Uh, we know that he's prepared to negotiate because he negotiated with Prigozhin, who he said he would never negotiate with, and actually negotiated a very bad deal. So we know he's prepared to give in on these things. Uh, I think what's important to bear in mind is that in the end of this, even if Putin goes, there will have to be some sort of new understanding between Russia and Ukraine. They have to respect the borders, and they're going to have to hand over these war criminals. You know, we didn't get Milosevic by invading uh, to, to The Hague by invading uh, Serbia. We had to persuade the Serbs to hand him and Karadzic and so the others the, over. Retribution and uh, reparations are going to have to be part of any. They would have to be part of a negotiation. Of yes. Actually, it's, I think it's a very important point about war criminals, because many, many in the West think it's it's impossible. It will never happen. But I have the opposite view. I think that's the best way to 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 force the split among Russian elites, because 99% of, of Putin's elites they are thugs, they're thieves, they're not war criminals. He's talking about a very small percentage of those who committed war crimes and were directly responsible for the war in Ukraine. And if the West insists on sanctions not being lifted before war criminals delivered to, to justice, then you could see that some of them, you know, or many of them, will start looking for alternative uh, uh, um, uh, solutions and, and will start negotiating uh, with, with those who can help them uh, uh, to lift sanctions. I want to jump ahead to the NATO summit in the middle, uh, the second week of July, not very far off now at all. And we've had, uh, as part of this very lively panel, Julian Smith, the U.S. ambassador to NATO, key figure in this, given, as we've been discussing, the U.S.'s uh, crucial role in this. What, uh, Jonathan, what do we need to hear from NATO? Well, I listened very carefully to what the ambassador said, and what she didn't say was that Ukraine would be joining NATO. So and that, that is going to be the question hovering over this. And the danger is what we do is we have a summit that's set up as going to be a success for Ukraine joining NATO. And if it isn't, that's going to be a success for Russia. And we don't want that. So I think there needs to be a way found of dealing with that problem. Erisio, there are these two questions. I mean, expectations being raised in Ukraine, joining the EU, joining NATO. And, you know, we've begun to hear already about the danger of raising those expectations which may not be met. So just to debrief after Ukraine recovery conference in London last week that was hosted here by the UK government, you know, the raving applause was when Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European uh, Union, said Ukraine will be a member of the European Union, and the investors and everybody confirmed that. And also the foreign minister of Germany, the foreign minister of France, there is a consensus Ukraine will be a member of the European Union, and it's not said by Ukraine, it's said by these top officials. Now on NATO, Ukraine is trying to achieve similar statement. Ukraine will be a member of NATO, and the pathway to NATO, this is my belief, is actually a pathway to victory, because it will be a clear red line. It will be a clear signal to Russia 
that it cannot undermine this Western unity on the outcome in Ukraine because Ukraine belongs to the transatlantic community. We will see this package that the ambassador was talking about in Vilnius and hopefully in addition to the council high level political meeting between Ukraine and NATO, there will be much more military assistance and also program of reform to increase compliance with NATO and interoperability. Gary, danger of raising expectations in Kyiv that cannot be met. Look, uh, I think uh, Ukrainians uh, um, have pretty uh, bad record of, of, of a trust uh, to Western guarantees. Let's not forget 1994 uh, Budapest Memorandum that forced Ukrainians under American pressure to give up their nu nuclear warheads, 1,600 of them more than, than, than uh, Britain, France, and China had combined at the time. So, and at stake, they got a piece of paper that uh, Obama administration threw away 20 years later. So I think uh, the free world, NATO, led by America, must offer something to Ukraine. I don't know, political, membership, whatever. I think the, the, the list that should happen there is a full guarantee that the moment Ukraine is liberated, they immediately join NATO. I mean, they need some sort of, of a statement that will calm down this, 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 this uh, pressure based on uh, high expectations and also will help Ukrainians to understand that they're not spilling their blood uh, uh, for others uh, and receiving nothing in exchange. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. This is going to obviously um, occupy us an awful lot this summer, and I urge you to read the work of our Ru uh, wonderful Russia-Eurasia team. But we're going to have to stop there and swing Back to the UK, to the UK economy, that might seem a completely different subject, but of course, uh, inflation with which the government and the whole country is grappling has had a huge, uh, difficult um, insertion from the impact of the war in Ukraine on food and energy prices. And I now welcome the FT's Martin Wolf. Martin, sorry, what do we call you these days? Chief economics commentator. Still marvelously unchanging. Uh, marvelously unchanging. I haven't been sacked yet. Yeah. I'm talking to Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator of the FT. Martin, you've just come off a very lively panel talking about the great powers competition, and you were making the argument right at the start that this is in some sense inevitable, not the first time, but that it is, is what we are seeing is a clash of values, of systems, of completely different ways of organizing relations between people, and we shouldn't pretend it's going to go away. Yes, and in addition, it's a power conflict. Uh, we do have now, and I, th I think in a way, uh, we haven't had this for uh, since the mid-19th century. We have power of mid-19th century, the early 20th century, um, with Britain and Germany. We have two great powers, which are pretty equal, and in cross all domain, economically, technologically, size of military forces, and so forth. So if you add that in, this is... Uh, it looks a very profound uh, long-term geopolitical conflict. The theme of this conference is multilateralism. Is that wishful thinking when you're looking at a profound conflict that you're talking about just there? There are areas, I think, where multilateralism can work. So the way I think about it is there are different areas of human activity, some of which we really require cooperation of almost everybody, and in, therefore a multilateral perspective is necessary, but there are also areas where it's unworkable and great power competition, as we saw in, in the Cold War. At, at its core, it's about the relations between the great powers, and in this context, it's, that's bilateral, though of course allies matter a lot, so it becomes 
as indeed one of the participants, Bob Kagan, argued, very important that it's multilateral in the sense you've got lots of people who follow you, and he argued the Americans are much better at that than China, and that's a very important point, which I think is true. You do, th you do think it's true, despite think it's the true. Belt and Road Initiative and all China's effort to turn its, yes, its surpluses into, into a web of um, allies? I think ch the United States has allies in the sense that China doesn't. China has countries that have many that have a profound interest in good relations with China, and that is not insignificant. And they won't willingly thing. ignore their relations with, with China just because the Americans say so. That's clearly, that's clear. But as an alliance system, America has an asset, assets, which I think China doesn't, basically the only ally uh, China has is Russian. That's basically because it's completely dependent. It's a satellite now, a ridiculous failure of Russian policy. But the the core point is, at its heart, this is a bilateral relationship, and it's not going to become something else, and it's not going to be resolved in the Security Council any more than the Cold War ever got resolved in the Security Council. And we began the day with James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, making a great plea for, in fact, expansion of the Security Council. I pushed him on whether it would work any better and what he would do about the vetoes, and he said, uh, essentially, wait for the next speech, or he didn't quite say, wait for the next Foreign Secretary. But... Um, he was putting much weight on on the UN, um, but you're you're there talking about the you know the 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 ways the, the many places where these two powers have to deal with each other. Um, just sticking with multilateralism, you 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 said to great applause in the hall, and you won't have been watching, I don't think, uh, but Twitter went nuts at the same time. You were saying, look, you sign up for the the values and the interests expressed in the the, the system of rules uh, after the Second World War that the U.S. shaped, um, but then you were talking about hypocrisy, and that was that was the word picked up uh, uh, that people were immensely excited about and pleased to hear you utter. Could you just tell us what you meant by that? Well, uh, I was responding to a statement that we, we are committed to a rules-based multilateral order, which is a, a phrase that we hear very often. And it is true that we write rules of different kinds. They're in the UN Charter, they're in the, the rules of the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, they're all there. And they are obeyed sometimes. They're particularly often obeyed by weaker powers when they have to. But of course, we all know very, very well that pretty fundamental principles of the inviolability of state borders, of the rules governing world trade, the rules of international relations more broadly have been pretty obviously violated repeatedly. We've overthrown regimes with a gay abandon in the Cold War. It's very doubtful that the Iraq war was started on honest pretenses. We can at least debate this. And to the outside world, and to me, a lot of this looks like hypocrisy. And the most recent example, when we're talking about the rules-based order in trade, is, and I can do this in, in substantial measure, I mean, Donald Trump simply blew it up. Uh, and he didn't even pretend that he was following the rules. So so the rules are propounded when it's convenient for the great powers and ignored when it isn't. And that's just how it is. And it's ridiculous for us to pretend otherwise. Now, as a medium-sized power, like Britain, it was completely reasonable to say it's sacrosanct. But that itself isn't going to m mean very much to China or the US if they decide that it is clearly in their interest to ignore them.
Yes, and you can point to really quite a lot of instances, um, including recently, when the UK and uh, American interests have diverged. Just sticking with the UK, and we did begin, as I said, with the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, trying not with bombast, but trying to position Britain in this and calling for all kinds of things, calling uh, for the, the, the UN to uh, do all kinds of things. Do you think Britain are, can have any real influence in shaping this world that it would like to see continue to exist? I think it's a very good but somewhat open question. Um, so by leaving the EU... Uh, we obviously lost one important forum in which we had a voice, and an important voice, and the EU, though it's clearly a secondary power, in, in, in economic terms, is a substantial one. So that is a minus from an influence and power point of view, and many people who were against bra- Brexit made this out. They made this point uh, forcibly, made, uh, made, it, made it something that was important. But uh, one can argue that outside the EU, but part of the West, there is greater independence for Britain. It can put forward its views, but it's what you then have is not weight. You clearly, Britain is very, very much a second-ranked power uh, if you compare it with the superpowers. I mean, it's just obvious, uh, including the EU as a whole. So what you have is influence, which means the power to persuade. And to have the power to persuade, Britain does have some advantage. It's history, some institutions which people have respected, though they are not quite as healthy as they used to be, uh, the language, uh, and so forth. But I feel that if you want to persuade, you have to be able to do two things. You have to put forward good ideas, which make sense to people and come from politicians whom the world respects, which has not always been the case recently, but I can remember examples not so long ago when we did have that. Uh, and, uh, and second, we have to be able to form alliances, perhaps only temporary ones, perhaps more permanent, with other countries who will be happy to cooperate with us. If we can do those two things, I think Britain can still have a not insignificant voice in the world. Uh, so it's, it's not going to be decisive, but I think we have the power to persuade, and that includes our close relations with Europe, if we play it well, obviously our close relationship with the US, which is one of affection and shared culture and history. So it's not nothing, but it depends very much on how good British politicians are at exploiting their opportunities and how big a view they have of what Britain can do, which I think in the last seven, eight years, we've really lost. Do we, does Britain really have to demonstrate economic success as part of that? I mean, that might be one reason why people looked at its politicians with respect in the past, uh, when Britain was growing strongly, and that has slipped away at the moment uh, for a whole range of reasons that you and your colleagues write about. But Britain at the moment seems trapped in one of those predicaments where democracies find it very hard to solve their own problems, that politicians find it very hard to get the assent for the difficult things they want people to do in order, they say, to turn the country round. Are we as stuck as some commentators would portray it at the moment? Well, there are two aspects to this question. The first is, does economic success matter? And I think it does. It's not the only thing, but if you're seen as a nation and an econ- with an economy in irretrievable decline, uh, becoming less relevant by the day 
in anything that matters economically, they're not going to pay much attention to you. I mean, the single most important thing that made Britain a great power was the Industrial Revolution. That's just a fact. In the middle of the 19th century, we Britain did have the most powerful economy in the world. And that's, in my view, why they managed to grab all that empire in the late 19th century. So economic success matters. By the way, I'm not suggesting we go back to imperialism under any circumstances. It's a terrible mistake, in my view. But the point is uh, that. And what's become obvious, and I started writing this pretty soon after the financial crisis, that the global financial crisis revealed that our economy was much weaker than many of us thought, and it has gone on being very weak. So we have the worst productivity growth record in the G7, apart from Italy. Uh, real wages, we've just looked at this recently now, are no higher than they were in 2007. That's the longest period of real wage stagnation, certainly since the beginning of the 20th century. And on top of this, we've inflicted what is seen, at least from the economic point of view, by the world as the self-inflicted wound of Brexit. So we have to do a lot to restore credibility. Now, I think we can do things, but they have certain elements. We, we need to restore as much as we can of good functioning relations with Europe because it will remain our most important trading partner. It's our neighbor. Uh, it's very important, for example, that we be part of Horizon, which is the scientific program, because that's been very important for the success of our universities, on which our new technology sector, which will be very important, will depend. We need to raise corporate investment and public investment really quite dramatically. That involves a whole slew of changes. We have some very difficult domestic policy changes which are necessary to restore growth. One of them is changes in planning rules is crucial. I've argued very strongly we have to change pension arrangements so we start getting funding of venture capital from this country. There's a whole slew of difficult things. Some of this will involve more public spending, and I think we will end up with somewhat higher taxes. But a lot of it is just getting rid of outworn obstructions in our system. And the problem is, as you've hinted, that uh, none of this had, which had to do with the EU, which have to do with uh, the fact that our politics have become ossified. Our old have become very conservative, and they don't want to give up anything. Our young have become very frustrated, and politicians don't show any willingness to take any of this on. And uh, I don't think it's hopeless. I don't think it's hopeless at all. But old industrial countries are all finding it very difficult to transform. And we're an old industrial country whose new sector, new, restored sector from the 1980s was finance. And finance is not going to do again what it did for us in the decades from 1980 to 2007. Thank you very much for that sweep, which uh, is a reminder that you cannot split off foreign policy from what is happening at home and that that really underpins things. We had Tony Blair... Yesterday at Chatham House on a big panel about uh, artificial intelligence, but uh, uh, bewailing, uh, in his words, the way that politics seemed to just uh, uh, debate about a little bit more on taxes here, a little bit more of spending there without this kind of manifesto for change. Um, But we can't go into all that now, so I'm going to leave you to get on with writing your next column. By the by, I did very much enjoy your one this week on the disappointments, if you like, of uh, the new American foreign policy and some things you liked about it. Martin, thank you very much.
Great pleasure, as always, Bronwyn. And finally, on the podcast, we get to this year's Chatham House Prize winner. The prize is an annual honour awarded to the person, persons or organisation deemed to have made the most significant contribution to the improvement of international relations in the previous year. The Chatham House Prize is voted for by Chatham House members following nominations from the Institute's staff. And the winner this year is President Volodymyr Zelensky. Dear friends, um, I'm grateful for your attention to Ukraine and your respect for Ukraine. Ukrainian soldiers, all our beautiful people, really deserve the highest honors. Millions of our people fight and work for our freedom, our, our common freedom, Ukrainian and all free nations. And I'm sure that we will keep our freedom and your reward in particular. The Chatham House Prize for Ukraine is another proof that the world believes in Ukraine, believes in Ukrainians, believes in, in our victory. And that is the end of our discussion, though there was lots, lots more to the London conference. Do look online for all the fantastic sessions. Big thank you to all my guests who've been talking on this podcast, Gary Kasparov, Orisia Lutsevich, Jonathan Powell and Martin Wolfe. Do follow them all on Twitter. A reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow and subscribe. Please do leave us a review. And to read more from all our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org where you can follow all of our work. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening.